The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. A reading from Selected Verses in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. God said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the lands that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I'll add my greeting uh, to that of Keith's. Um, we're glad that you're here this morning. We trust the Lord will bless your time with us. Whether you're a longtime member or a first-time visitor, uh, it is good to be together in the house of the Lord this morning. Before we uh, dive in and look at this passage, though, it would also be good for us to pray. Uh, my heart has been drawn uh, these last few weeks to that quote I shared with you a month or so ago from John Newton on the gift of Scripture, on the importance of Scripture in our lives. John Newton, the uh, converted slave trader and ship's captain who became a pastor and hymn writer, he said this, If we wander from Scripture in pursuit of either present peace or future hope, our search will always end in disappointment. And he is so right. So before we go to Scripture, let's go to our God in prayer. Father, even though that was written 300 years ago, uh, we know of its truth. We don't want to be a people who wander from your word, but instead a people who draw near and cherish it. For as you have said, it is living and active and it can penetrate our hearts. So we'd simply ask that uh, you would use it as you've used it for generation upon generation this day. Use it in our hearts to grow us in grace, to show us more of who you are, to show us more of what you've done in Christ for people like us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Indeed, as, uh, as Keith mentioned, we're continuing our study in the Ten Commandments this morning, which sadly, uh, the Ten Commandments have fallen out of favor in our day. And I was thinking about it this week, not just fallen out of favor in our culture, but even, amen, even in churches, even with some evangelical pastors. They say, we're under grace today, we're not under law, not anymore. So the Ten Commandments really have no relativity to our lives. No longer do they matter in our lives at all. I was uh, 
reading a quote this week of a book that was written four years ago. I'm not going to tell you who wrote it, uh, but it's a very influential evangelical mega church pastor. Evangelical, okay? He published a book and he wrote this. Maybe you heard uh, Brian talk about this on the, on the podcast, but he said this, the ten, the ten Commandments have no authority in your life. None. To be clear, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. Participants in the New Covenant are expected to obey the single command that Jesus issued as, as part of His New Covenant. And that command is this, As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. Just as His New Covenant replaced his old covenant so his new commandment replaces all the old commandments ten commandments have no authority thou shalt not shalt not obey the ten commandments that's a total misunderstanding and misinterpretation of scripture again like we talked about a minute ago if you want to understand new testament doctrines or sacraments got to go find their old testament roots such as the same there we might be appalled at someone saying that from, a, from an evangelical conservative church. But we need to recognize, as we study the Ten Commandments, as we're halfway through them, we need to recognize that that's nothing new. Professing Christians for generations have struggled to properly understand the use of the law. I was reading uh, J.C. Ryle this past week. J.C. Ryle, if you don't know that name, he was an Anglican, a great Anglican bishop uh, in the English church, in the Anglican church, uh, back in the 1800s. And he came across the exact same issue 170 years ago. This is what he wrote about that same issue of, of, uh, of the law not mattering in, even in the church, much less in, in uh, society. This is what he said. Let us beware of despising the Ten Commandments. Let us not suppose for a moment that it is set aside by the gospel. Or that Christians have nothing to do with it. The coming of Christ did not alter the position of the Ten Commandments one hair's breadth. If anything, the coming of Christ exalted and raised their authority. The law of the Ten Commandments is God's eternal measure of right and wrong. By it, we get our knowledge of sin. By it, the Spirit shows people their need of Christ and drives them to Him. Christ refers his people to it as their rule and guide for holy living. And then I love this. In its right place, it's talking about the law, it is just as important as the glorious gospel. It cannot save us. We can't be justified by it. But never, ne never let us despise or ignore it. I love that. I think he's absolutely right. In its right place... The Ten Commandments are just as important as the gospel because they show us our sin. They show us our need of Christ. They drive us to Him. And they show us how we're supposed to live once our hearts have been changed, once our hearts have been renewed by God's grace. How can we live in a way that people like us, that our lives would actually give glory to God and actually bring good to us? So we come this week with that introduction. We come to the, first, uh, the Sixth Commandment. You shall not murder. If you think about it, you know, on, on first glance, this is the one that many of us finally hit if you've been here in this series and go, whew, got some breathing room on this one. I'm almost out of the woods on this one. I mean, 
We all admit we have a tendency to make little gods out of things and take even good things in creation and elevate them to ultimate things and thereby violate the first commandment. We all admit that. We all admit uh, that we struggle with the fourth commandment that requires a weekly day of Sabbath, of, of worship and rest. We'll admit that. We struggle with the fifth commandment, with honoring our parents, honoring those whom God has placed in authority over us. We struggle with the other side of that, of rightly using the authority we've been given over others. We'll admit that. But we come to the sixth commandment, we go, finally, I have some breathing room. You shall not murder. I'm okay on this one, right? I've done a lot of things. I know I'm a sinner, I've done sinful things, but I haven't murdered anyone. But I think as we study it this morning, as we really come to understand it more fully, we'll realize that there may be no commandment that's more frequently and blatantly violated than this one. So if you look at your outline in your bulletin, you'll see we're going to take it in four points. We're going to look first at the rationale behind the commandment. We'll look at the meaning of the commandment. We'll look at Jesus' correction of our shallow understanding of the commandment. And we'll end with the hope of the gospel for all who break this commandment. So let's start with the rationale now. We would all agree, uh, if I polled you when you came in this morning, we would all agree we shouldn't murder. If we went downtown this afternoon and polled 100 people on uh, down outside the aquarium, polled 100 people, we would probably find that 100 out of 100 agree that murder's wrong. But the question is, why is it wrong? And if we ask that question, doing the, the, you know, the poll on the street, why is murder wrong? Okay, you say it's wrong, why is it wrong? We'd get answers like this. Well, it's just wrong. Everybody knows it's wrong. It's just not the right thing to do. If society's going to function and we're going to feel safe and flourish as human beings, we can't just go around killing each other. We get a lot of different answers like that, but they're all basically some kind of utilitarian ethics. But as as Christians, we know that the, the sanctity of life has to be based on something more than pragmatic considerations. So that leads to another question. Who decides whether my life or your life is worth protecting? Who decides that? And on what basis should that decision be made? Should it be uh, each individual makes that decision for themselves of whether anybody else's life has value? Should it be up to the government to make that decision? Well, we don't have to ask those questions really because the scriptures give us the answer to that clearly give us the answer to that the scriptures I want to jump around a little bit in the scriptures because the commandment's so short it's hard to exposit two words and it's only two words in Hebrew so we're going to go around to some other scriptures on this so if you're taking notes write down Genesis 1 26 God creates all, all other things in all creation and then on the on the sixth day he says this in verse 26 let us make man in our image the triune god says let us make man in our image after our likeness and then a few chapters further in genesis 9 he's talking to moses and he says this to moses from each man i will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed For God has made man 
in his own image. So the rationale is pretty obvious. The rationale, simply put, is this. Since we're uniquely created by God in his image, we're accountable to him for how we treat human life. I'll say it again. Since we're uniquely created in God's image, we're accountable to him for how we treat human life. Since every human being is created in the image of God, every human being has inherent worth and dignity. That's the rationale. No matter what race or ethnicity or religion, no matter how they vote, no matter what their health is like, no matter what disabilities they may have, no matter what age they are, no matter how irritating they may be to us personally, they have dignity and worth because they're created in the image of God. That's the rationale that's under this command. But then look at the meaning of it. Again, at the outset, it's one of the shortest commands uh, in all of uh, the Ten Commandments. It's just two words. You could legitimately translate it, no murdering. That's what he's saying. But some of us grew up with the King James Version hearing it more. Uh, like, how many of y'all grew up with the King James just hearing it more? And the King James says what? Thou shalt not kill. It's not the same thing. It's not really, the King James is not really a great translation because the word, the Hebrew word is not used here. It's not a generic term for any kind of killing. It's a very specific term. It's a specific word used for the killing, the violent killing of a personal enemy. So thou shalt not murder is a way better translation. It's not used, this term's not used uh, in the scriptures for acts of just war when God calls his people to battle. It's not used for capital punishment. It's not used for lethal self-defense. It's always used in things like premeditated murder or assassination or manslaughter. So what does it mean then? What does the, the, the actual command, thou shalt not murder, what does it mean? Well, we're going to look at it in your outline negatively and positively. Negatively, in your outline, you'll see this. We are not to unlawfully or immorally take human life. So, again, God's not forbidding killing of any kind whatsoever. He's not forbidding uh, lethal self-defense. He's not forbidding capital punishment. In some places in Mosaic Law, God actually says the penalty for this crime, for this sin, is capital punishment. We find that throughout Mosaic Law. But what he is forbidding is immoral or unlawful killing. He's also forbidding the taking of any life that's not sanctioned in God's word. Like the capital punishment thing, it's there for the nation of Israel. We can debate whether it should be there for us or not, but it's there clearly for the nation of Israel. It's sanctioned in the word there, in God's word there. But the taking of life without that sanctioning would be things like abortion or suicide, or as I was reading this week, euthanasia. Euthanasia, the, the first nation to pass laws to allow it, uh, did so back in the 70s, in the early 1970s, the Netherlands pa uh, passed the assisted suicide, the legal assisted suicide laws. But what began as voluntary in the early 70s has really changed today. In some cases, Insurance companies now refuse to pay for life-extending treatments, but will pay for life-ending drugs. 
I read this week that more and more requests for assisted suicide in the Netherlands are coming from family members and not from patients themselves. It's kind of staggering, isn't it? It's one way to bring down the cost of health care. Just say, if you get to a certain point or have a certain problem, we're not paying for it anymore. So negatively, we're not to unlawfully or immorally take human life. That's what that means. But positively, look at your outline again. Positively, he says, we're to protect and cherish all human life. Protect and cherish all human life. To, to, to promote the flourishing of human life in our culture. I love the way... Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism dealt with that this week in the third question um, in your bulletins. In the third question that we affirmed there, uh, the question is, is it enough then that we don't murder our neighbor? You know, is it enough? And the answer that we read together was no. By condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves. To be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly toward them, to protect them from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. That's the ethic of the kingdom there, to protect and cherish all life. Makes you wonder, though, why is this necessary? Why is this command necessary? And the answer is simply because we live in a fallen, broken world. We live in a culture that's full of sin, that we contribute to, and full of death, it's not new. I was reading this week uh, a survey, uh, or excuse me, a study that was done 20 years ago by the American Psychological Association. 20 years old, 20 years ago, this study came out. This is what staggered me. By the time the average child finishes elementary school, he will have watched 8,000 televised murders. And 100,000 acts of on-screen violence. That's from the American Psychological Association. That's staggering. That's 20 years ago. I, don't, I doubt it's gotten better. 25 years ago, the Ameri I'm just picking secular organizations here. The American College of Forensic Psychiatry, they conducted a comprehensive review of 1,000 scientific studies. Right? 1,000 scientific studies... They do a comprehensive review of that, and the studies were on the relationship between on-screen violence that later led to real-life violence. So they studied children up through, I think, 30-year-olds, and they found 98% of the studies showed a definitive link between the on-screen violence that children watch, that we watch when we're younger, and real-life violence later in life. 98% of those studies confirmed that. I was reading that, and, and, and we're tempted to think, yep, Hollywood's the problem, right? Yep, TV shows are the problem. The movies that, that Hollywood puts out, they're the problem. The violent video games that are made today, they're the problem. If we could just do something about them. And I'm not saying they're not a problem. Surely they are a problem. But Jesus says they are not the problem. That brings us to our third point. We've seen the rationale and the meaning. Look at Jesus' corrective of our shallow understanding of what the problem is. We think the problem's out there. Look what Jesus says. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 5, verse 21. If you don't, don't worry about it. It's a familiar passage. I'll just read it for you. 
Matthew 5, verse 21 and 22, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old. So, like, he's almost saying, like, you heard Moses say this, you know, to those of old. Moses said this, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fires of hell. You see what Jesus is saying? You see what he's, he's doing here in correcting our shallow way that we want to view this commandment? Like, I've never physically taken the life of another. Jesus is saying this, we can violate this commandment without actually committing murder. We can violate this commandment because it's a matter of what goes on in our hearts. The problem's in here. And I love a way, uh, 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 the way the Heidelberg Catechism does this in that middle question that we affirmed. The question is, does this commandment refer only to murder? And the answer that we read was, by forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, envy, hatred, anger, and vindictiveness. In God's sight, all such are disguised forms of murder. That's one of the beauties of some of these catechisms. They take the whole teaching of Scripture and, and boil it down. To, they include not just what Moses said, do not murder. They include what Jesus teaches about it. What's the catechism saying? What's Jesus saying? He's saying the root of murder is in here. It's in the human heart. What the other writers of Scripture, that's what they understood the Ten Commandments to mean. That's what they understood Jesus' words to mean. Listen to what John says in 1 John. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And you can't get much clearer than that. He's correcting our shallow understanding. He's showing us that we're all murderers in our hearts. He's showing us that wrongful anger is murder. He's showing us that disparaging speech is murder by the tongue. Have you, have you ever heard the, the, the phrase, I'm sure you have, character assassination? You kind of go, what is that? I mean, think about that. That's exactly what this is talking about. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, you're a fool. It's character assassination. Disparaging speech. It's murder by the tongue. Jesus, uh, one of, you know, some of those verses in the scriptures, you're just so thankful. You just love some of those verses. You memorize them, and there's others you read, and you go, I know I need that, but I just wish that wasn't there. Right? Matthew 12, Jesus says this, Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's one of them for me. It's like, ugh. You know, parents, don't you wish he had said, Out of the bad behavior and poor decisions of your children, your mouth speaks? Out of the continual irritation and disappointment of this person or that person in your life, your mouth speaks. But Jesus doesn't say that because he wants us to grasp the reality that the problem is a matter of the heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I love uh, G.K. Chesterton. There's a wonderful series on PBS called Father Brown. I don't know if, how many of y'all have seen that. It's one of those British things. It's about a pastor who... Uh, in this, uh, an Anglican pastor in this little village who helps solve murders and crimes and things. 
Some of it is not all that great, to be honest with you. But the, the Chesterton's character is wonderful, and that's what it's patterned after. And, and Chesterton has this, he lets his character, Father Brown, this wonderful character, he lets him, he lets him moralize at one point, and, and he has this soliloquy, and, and he finishes, and he says this, no man is really any good at all until he knows how bad he really is or might be. I love that. No man, no woman, none of us are really any good at all until we know how bad we are or how bad we might be. He's saying we, we don't know our own hearts. Jesus is correcting our shallow understanding of what this commandment says, thou shalt not murder. I've got to keep going. It's almost done here. We've seen the rationale, the meaning, the corrective, Jesus' corrective. Lastly, let's look at the hope of the gospel for all who break this commandment. I think, I think it's pretty clear from Scripture and from the catechisms that it's not just prohibiting those violent acts that, that, that are actually physical murder, but also the emotions, the violent emotions, the violent intentions of the heart, the degrading critical speech. It's condemning both of those, prohibiting both of those. We can be 100% murder-free in terms of actually committing murder and still 100% guilty of breaking this command. And if our lives, Jesus would say, if our lives, if we look at our lives and they're marked by anger and bitterness and insults of others and criticism on the inside, then something's wrong. That should not mark a regenerate heart. Those, those traits shouldn't mark a regenerate heart. The fruit of the spirit, right, versus the fruit of the the fruit, the fruit of the flesh. The fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, wait a minute, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. There's nine of them. That's what's supposed to mark our lives. So if we're struggling with anger on the inside or bitterness or insults or criticism, something's wrong. So what's the hope of the gospel for folks like us, all of whom break this commandment? Well, in Matthew 5, right before the section that I just read you, right before that, the previous verse, Jesus says this. He's, he's talking to his listeners, and he says, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, the Pharisees get a bad rap. They were so much more outwardly religious and faithful than any of us. They tithed their mint and spices, their, their garden vegetables they tithed. That's how serious they were. They were serious about keeping the Sabbath. Maybe gone a little bit overboard, but they were serious about keeping it as opposed to many of us who profess Christ who treat it like just another day. And Jesus' words would have made his listeners, when he says, unless your righteousness is more than these people's, they would have felt like, what's the hope for us? But the Pharisees had missed it. Their righteousness was all about externals. They didn't see the heart issues that are, are lying just under the surface of all their outward righteousness. And Jesus wanted his listeners, and he wanted us to know that there is one whose righteousness does surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And it's the righteousness of Jesus himself. He's calling them to trust in him. He's saying, if our trust is rooted in him, if our trust is rooted in his righteous record and not our own unrighteous record, then there's great hope for us. 
John writes in 1 John, John's talking about, you know, I'm praying for you that you'll grow in grace. I'm praying for you that you won't sin. But if you do sin, which we all do, he says, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. John's saying, Jesus is the one who was betrayed by one of the twelve, abandoned by the rest, and murdered on a Roman cross for people like us. He's the one that hanging on a cross, while hanging on a cross, while he was being murdered and being mocked, he's the one that looked down on those who were doing that and said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He's the one that, although he never violated a single one of the commandments of God, took on himself the wrath of God for people like us who violate them every day. My prayer is that twofold. One, that if we have not, if you have not looked to him first for his saving grace, that that, that would be where you start this day. And if you have, if you would account yourself a believer, then you would look to him for his sanctifying grace that our lives really might be lived in the full reality that we're breaking these commands and a real desire to have him change us where these things don't mark our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we viewed this commandment with uh, very little understanding, very shallow understanding of what it really calls us to and that has enabled us to think we're in pretty good shape. We thank you for the historic catechisms of our faith that really enlighten us and pull all the teaching of Scripture together to show us our need, to show us our need of Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness that your Scripture also shows us that we find in Christ, the the ongoing commitment that you have, Lord, also to finish the good work you've started in us. We praise you for these things, and we thank you that the more we see our sinfulness, the more pressed to you for your grace we are. And Lord, for some who may be with us this morning, it may be that they're being pressed toward you for saving grace for the very first time. And we pray that that you would grant them the, the grace, the faith, the forgiveness, the repentance that you've granted to us. For others of us, Lord, we're pressed as we study this to go back to your inexhaustible well of grace where we find what our hearts really long for, your mercy and your forgiveness. Bless us all, we pray, as we come to you. For you're the God of all comfort, Lord. You're the one who reveals yourself as the God of all grace. Grow us in your grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.